Welcome to the Forest Educator Podcast. I'm Ricardo Sierra. Today's episode probably is going to seem a little weird because this is about a time in my life when I was training to be a wilderness instructor, but not just as an instructor, but also someone who was deeply committed and connected to the natural world. And the elements of like animal tracking and nature awareness and wilderness survival, all of those things all revolved a lot around animals and their patterns and understanding the forest in a different way than what we normally would look at. And I remember thinking a lot about those shoulder times. Most of the time we're awake and up and ready to go. It's like the sun has come up and then we're just like doing our thing all day long, whether we're working or even if we're out tracking or something like we're doing things in the daytime and most of the world, the animal world is gone. They're sleeping, they're resting, they're digesting food, or they're being mostly unobtrusive to avoid having problems and avoiding predators and so forth. And those shoulder times, the evenings and the mornings was a, is a time of great activity because there's the night shift is just starting and the day shift is going to bed. So the birds are singing as their last evening chorus. And then all the other animals start waking up and get ready to move around now that humans are sleeping or inside for the most part. I started to spend more time both early morning and in the evenings as they stretched in. And I got to a point where in that training process where I just thought I need to understand what happens at night. And this is this was really my own thing that I did. I didn't really hear it from Tom Brown or anybody else. I didn't, I've never heard anybody else talk about it. But I just thought, for, I'm going to spend a month and I'm going to become nocturnal. I'm going to switch over my rhythm if I can. I'm going to spend my time in the woods almost exclusively at night. and. I wanted to do this for a number for those all those reasons above and I thought I, if I'm going to do this I have to have some rules ground rules and everything cuz I've spent a lot of time camping and being out there exploring playing games with students into the night 10 o'clock 11 o'clock and those are fun and I wanted to break from the experiences that you have where you're doing your day and then you slide into the night and then at a certain point, you're like, okay, I'm tired. And so then you go back to your shelter or you go back to your house and you go to sleep. And I thought, I don't want to do that uh, because I, that's a different kind of experience. There's like a, I'm going to leave before it gets crazy, if you will. I'm, I'm going to leave as right as the day or the night is really getting going. I'm going to come in and bail, get bailed. I basically set up a gra- some ground rules. I said, I want to go out there for about a month. I want to go out every night. I gave myself some exceptions because I have like obligations to visit family. And there's a few exceptions that I had. But I, I said, I'm not going to do anything during the day. I'm not going to work at a job. I'm really going to sleep as much as I can or rest as deeply as I can and then go out. And I tried in the beginning to do my daily, do a few things in the evening. And then all of a sudden it gets dark. And then I go out kind of after dark and that didn't work very well. It really psychologically, there's something about being like in human light in the evening and then walking outside and having it be pitch black that did not really feel good to me. So one of the rules was I have to head out right as that dawn or the evening chorus was starting. So it usually varied, but it's the evening chorus usually happens right about the time that the amount of light and darkness is almost is equal. So it's really like full shadow, then moving darker and darker. And 
so I, I made sure to get out either a little before that or right about that time. And that helped me a lot because as it got darker, my eyes would just naturally adjust. And one of my rules was no fires. I wasn't going to build any fires while I was out there if I could possibly avoid it. Because I knew if I made a fire, it would attract attention. It would let everybody in the area know where I was in terms of animals. And I just knew that it would be disruptive and I'd be breaking sticks and doing all that. So I just said, no fires unless I'm you know really cold or something happens. And I also was not going to use my flashlight unless it was an emergency. And I had like a few other rules too, which was get out there during rain or shine and just be out there. And my goal was not to study humans as much as it was to study animals. And so I tried to avoid most places like barnyards where there's like a big light and then you could sit in the shadow and watch animals cross the barn, the barnyard during the night, or whatever. I've done that before for a number of hours. Mostly it's just like barn cats fighting and going crazy. So an occasional raccoon or possum or something. So it wasn't, I, I didn't really want to study those animals in conjunction of humans being on their feeding patterns or whatever. So the other rule that I had was no sitting. I knew from experience that if I was out in darkness and I sat down on a little ledge or I sat down next to a tree and leaned back against it, that I would fall asleep really fast. Even if I'd slept all day, it would be easy to fall asleep and still be out there, which is great, but I wouldn't really be observing. So I had to move slowly around. I had to come up with a way to check things out, create my own routine, but I couldn't really just stop and hang out knowing that my tendency would be to crash. So that was one of my rules. And what else? Did I have any other rules? I carried with me a first aid kit. I carried a water bottle. Actually, I had two smaller water bottles that I kept full. I had fruit and I usually would have apples. I think that was my main thing, which I got really sick of halfway through. And then I had a couple of granola bars and those were pretty much it. I didn't really want to make food and eating the basis of my experience, but I had to have something because the night is a long time. Now I did this in like late August, early September. And that time of year, the, the nights are getting longer, but they're still on the, you know, shorter side of the days. So anyway, I really, I really enjoyed that process of seeing the, the night come on and then the morning shift come back. And it's still a long time. So when you're out there, it is a, an impactful experience, especially when all these other rules are in place. My, my goal, again, was not to be involved in human activity if I didn't need to be. Um, there were some things that happened that were a little bit unavoidable. Uh, I also had, you know, a knife, some string and cord. I had, you know, like a little uh, personal fire kit. I had a couple of survival tools. But it, it really, my, my little pack was really pretty light. And I had packable rain gear, you know, the kind of rain pants and rain punt, like a, like a, almost like a windbreaker really, but it was waterproof that was packable into its own pouch. So into its, into its pocket. So I had one of those, I used it a few times, especially when it just started really pouring down, which it did. And I wasn't fanatical about this. Like, obviously there were times where somebody would come into town and go, Hey, let's hang out together. And I would just go, okay, I'll spend a couple of days with people. But I did notice that it really disrupted my routine when that happened. So I tried to keep that as at a minimum. And if I took two days with somebody who was out of town visiting, I had to tack those two days on to the end of my month. At this time that I'm describing this experience that I had, this challenge that I gave myself, I was, had, or I guess I should say, I had been up to that point taken a number of classes with Tom Brown, like trainings. So I had three or four basic survival classes and advanced and intermediary classes. I had taken tracking 
nature awareness courses. I took a few philosophy classes. I was in some of his very first classes that he ever taught. And I also was taking several of the scout class, which was all about escape and evasion, travel, being able to be hidden and unseen and invisible and all that. And those classes really did take place a lot at, in, at night, usually involving sneaking up on human activity or games that we would play with each other, or we'd go on kind of long journeys through the Pine Barrens. And that was where I started to get comfortable being outside and being outside at night. But in most all of those cases, I was with a group of people. So I had a group of people out there and you, when you're part of a group, it's a different experience. And that made it more comfortable for me. Prior to that, when I was a kid, I used to go out at night with my friends and we would go out and get night crawlers. I don't know if anybody is familiar with this concept, but apparently at night, not apparently, I know for a fact this is the case, but at night there are these very large earthworms called night crawlers that will come up out of the grass and out of the soil and they will come up and collect dew for moisture and they will feed on plant material up there and then but they usually would keep part of their body the very part of their tail in a hole so they would they'll be like really stretched out and they're cruising around most people wouldn't know this because you don't go out at night and shine your flashlight in the grass very quietly but basically if you make a lot of noise or pound the ground at all they'll go right back in and you'll never see them but especially if you put some water over the soil or over the grass they will come right up to the surface to check that stuff out and get something to drink, especially if the soils are really dry. And we would go out and just, we'd have a yogurt container with a little bit of soil in it. And you would have to very carefully see one of them that was stretched out and you'd have to grab it about mid in the middle of it. And you have to pinch it, not real, really hard, but you'd have to hold it down and then slowly wait till it like released for out of its hole and then put it in the container. And they were pretty strong. For someone who was like 12 years old or 10 years old, man, that was a, it was a pretty interesting experience doing that. And we would do that in the evenings, and it was the night before we'd go fishing. And sometimes we'd go out and do it, and then other times we'd just dig and get regular small garden earthworms. And it was definitely more fun to, to fish with the larger earthworms because we always seem to catch bigger fish when you use bigger worms. But you had to be comfortable going out there. And I usually would go out with my friends to do that. But the, another aspect of being out at night for me as a child was when I lived for a number of years, probably between my ages of 10 to 13, 12, 13, we lived in this village called Camp Hill Village, which is a kind of a Waldorf-based community for developmentally disabled adults. And so there was like, I don't know, 12 houses in this little valley on a, on a dirt road with a farm and a wood shop and a big garden and a whole bunch of really cool opportunities for those individuals to work at jobs and have a meaningful life. And then each of them would report back to their house and there would be house parents. My mom was a house parent there and she would hold the household, have three meals a day and, and basically create an experience there of a wonderful daily life and daily rhythm for everyone, not just for those individuals but they would benefit from that because they belonged there as well. So it was like partly for them and partly for everyone else. And it's a pretty unusual kind of model. My mother was there with my brother and my sister, and there were other house parents there. Many of them were from Europe. And like my best friend, his mother was from England. His father was Danish. We got to have inter interactions and experiences with all of these really unique individual people who were making that experience happen. And 
they would often work in, someone would be in charge of the woodworking shop where they made like these little wooden toys. And so there'd be ways that they would be sanding and prepping that. They had an enamel shop for a while, although I think that probably was pretty toxic. So I don't think that's around anymore. Uh, they had a bakery and would bake bread and cookies and things like that. There was like, again, the, a big garden. There was a farm, a biodynamic farm. And uh, there was a few other po positions as well. And many of the villagers, as they say, would work at other homes. So someone from our house that where we lived would go and work at another house and kind of help with vacuuming and cleaning and getting ready for getting soup ready for lunch and things like that, and then come back. So there was just this feeling of things were moving around. There wasn't like somebody just sitting in a room or being taken out in a van with one person to go to the mall or something like that. They actually were really integrated into this whole experience. And it, it was pretty cool. There was a weaving shop that did really well, made some beautiful weavings. And there was also like a processing center, which was a lame word, but it, but basically it was like an area where like when they, when green beans were ready, they would have bushels and bushels of green beans. And the job of that processing center was to divide up all the different beans and get, get some to every house and make sure they were washed and ready to go. Or it would be tomatoes, or it would be, when I worked there for a summer, we made cheese a lot. We actually took a lot of the milk and actually did cheese making, which was really cool. Anyway, the point about that I'm trying to make with this experience that I'm describing is that there were a lot of kids in this village, and there were a lot of these houses that were essentially one whole community of people that were very safe. And so a lot of times in my early childhood, we'd have some uh, times where my friends would sneak out at 12 o'clock, one o'clock in the morning, and we would just go out and wander around on the streets. We would go into the gardens. We would go to the farm. I know at Christmas time, we would sneak out and go hang out at the farm because allegedly the animals could talk on Christmas at midnight or something, which never happened. We wanted to find out. So we went out there many times trying to figure that out. And, but we felt very safe. It was a really nice thing. And, and again, I was always with other people. I really didn't go out by myself and wander around, but it was really, I remember the magic of it because you could just see the hills and the fields and the roads and everything all kind of lit up in this like silvery moonlight and smell the smells of summer and you could see fireflies and it was just a kind of a magical life to have especially when you're 11 or 12 and you just that's all and so i had those memories of that and i also had the memories of the crazy things we did at tom brown's where we would sneak into the giant garbage dump and worry about these packs of wild dogs that were out there and stuff, which were definitely not safe. So it was a interesting juxtaposition. So another interesting thing that happened when I was younger was that my friends and I would sneak out when we knew there was like an older teen party. And so we would sneak out and then spy on them because we didn't really know we weren't invited because we were like 12, but we wanted to find out what they were doing. So they would say, Hey, there's a party that keep it on the down low and they would plan it and they'd be like, we're going to be at the gravel bank, gravel pit over at this backfield somewhere. And we're going to be partying all night, whatever. And we didn't know what partying all night was. Honestly, I still don't really know, but they wanted to, to all meet up there. And so we would sneak out and make our way down those fields along the edges, always trying to stay away from where the teens would be traveling. And we would park ourselves on the lip of the gravel pit, hiding in the grass, and then just watch them as they, you know, had a old radios or whatever with uh, D cell batteries and a little bonfire. And they would, you know, share a couple bottles of wine or whatever they had managed to scrounge up. And that was their party. And it usually involved a lot of them just acting crazy and macho in front of each other. And I don't know, we, we never really got too impressed by it, but most of the time we would just get bored and then we would come back. And 
usually just hang out. And a couple times too, we also would go out uh, during maple syrup season because the the maple sugar shack had guys that were working there who would be boiling all night long. And so they had been, they'd go around with horses on a little sled and pick up all the syrup or sap and then bring it back and boil it down. And they'd have, you have to boil 40 gallons of sap to get one gallon of maple syrup. So it's a lot of boiling and they would be chopping wood in this little yard and making pancakes or waffles or whatever, and then getting some syrup and doing that all night. And sometimes when there was a lot of sap flowing, you had to use that sap up pretty fast. So it would be like a day and night kind of thing. And we would sneak in there and then just hang around and wait to see who got the nerve to go in there and see if they would give us some pancakes or something. And they they pretty much always did. And none of them really questioned the fact that it was like two in the morning and there was like four 12-year-olds wandering around the village at night. So I don't know if they were like partly drunk or not or whatever. I don't know if they ever told our parents. No one ever said anything. So we were just like, all right, probably in the clear. Hopefully I won't get in trouble from my mom from listening to this. But one of the things I'm going to tell you when I started to go nocturnal is that I, I noticed that when you go outside and you, if you are coming from like man-made light, if you're coming out from inside an, uh, a house or barn or workshop or something, and you step into the darkness, uh, it takes about 20 to 25 minutes to really get the full transition from what you can see and what you can experience. Uh, it takes about 20 minutes to really maximize your ability to see in the dark. And when you first do it, you walk out and it's just because your pupils are constricted, you're just like, it's not letting in a lot of light. And then you just step out and it's just like pitch black. But the longer you stay out, the more you suddenly begin to see that there's actually a lot of light and shadow going on. And it will look like everything is getting brighter, but it's not. It's really the same. It's just that your pupils are expanding slowly to let in more light. And when that happens, you'll start to see the forest in a different way. Another thing that happens is that you also become very aware of what is happening in the sky above you. And so when you look up, you can either see fields of filled with stars and the Milky Way, or you might see a few stars with some clouds up there blotting it out. Or sometimes you have these low clouds that have been lit up by ambient light from cities and towns nearby. And so there'll be this big glow where the cloud is lit up with this kind of dull color. Um, and if you ever go out at night and you're in a suburban area, you have that like suburban borealis, they call it, or whatever, uh, urban borealis, where it's just like all the clouds are reflecting all the moisture in those clouds, all that, those little particles are lit up by that light and trapping it. And it just creates this sort of fluorescent, semi-fluorescent glow that isn't quite fully dark and it's not really light enough to see. And it's a whole different kind of thing. But out in the country, you could still see areas where there would be a city or a town and it would be lit up if there were low clouds there. And that, that did help me orient to myself when I was out wandering. I started doing this as an, like I said, as an experiment because of wanting to check out the animals, see what the, what was going on. And when I first started to go out, I knew that I wanted to go out a little ways and I knew I had to, because I was going to keep moving, I had to have a routine. I had to have a route. So I had three different trails that I took and I would take this route where now at that time I was not living in Camp Hill Village or any place that was considered perfectly safe, but I did know most of the people around and some of the land that I wandered on was places where people, if somebody did see me and find out that I was there, they would know it was me and it wouldn't be really a big problem. Although you don't really know in the middle of the night what, what happens, but for the most part, uh, that really wasn't a problem for me. So I had two or three different routes. I had a one route where I would go down the hill, cross over a couple of roads, cross over a couple of fields, 
and then I would hit the stream and there was a trail that kind of went along the stream and then the stream kind of moved through a couple of cow pastures and then out into some big fields and over a period of say two miles and that stream actually flows into another stream that actually had some really beautiful like pools of water and waterfalls and I really liked going there because it used to be that those were public and then somebody bought the land and put a sign up saying nobody is allowed to go there. And so you couldn't really go there and park and then cross over because you'd get in trouble. But because I was just walking, I could go. And because it was the middle of the night, no one ever knew. And so I got would just wander along through that stream. And then there were a number of roads that I would walk to get back. And I, I, because I had all night, I didn't really have to, to hurry. So going along the stream became one of my primary things. I started to not like the stream at a certain point. Because if, if you have ever been out in the forest and sitting by a stream, like I remember having a, a deer hunter tell me one time, he's, if you ever sit at a spot waiting for deer and you sit where the water is like trickling down the hill, you'll know pretty fast why you shouldn't do that. And I said to him like, why? And then I just was like, all right, I'll just wait. And so one day I was walking through and I stopped while I was deer hunting right by this little creek. And I realized that I couldn't hear anything because all I could hear was the water trickling and I couldn't tell. And I, I remember sitting there for about half an hour and then all of a sudden looking up and there were like three deer right next to me. And I never heard them coming down the hill which if I had just been like 15 feet away behind a tree, I would have been all set. So I was like, all right, I learned my lesson and now I know. So being by the water is nice, but it masks the sound. So that was a, a big revelation for me because I couldn't really tell where animals were. And I liked being able to know when there was something going on. And another thing that was interesting is that when you can't see anything or very little, and we don't have that ability like cats or deer or whatever to let in so much light that we can actually see pretty well like those animals. We can't. So the other senses, as much as I'd love to believe that our senses get enhanced, like they say, oh, if you're blind, then your other senses are grow. I don't think they really grow, but I do think that you suddenly start paying attention to it and then asking your sense of smell to inform you of what is going on around you. And so you're asking your hearing to reflect back to you what is going on in the world around you too as well. So you become more aware. So it's like a muscle that gets more exercise. So for me being out there, I could be aware of the smell of a, a fish that was laying on the side of a pool that an animal had been eating. I could smell that from a little ways away. I could smell deer sometimes. If I was standing at one side of a field and there was a breeze blowing, I could actually smell kind of their fur and their whatever that musky scent is or the, I don't know if it was the animal droppings or whatever, but I could smell them before I could hear them. And obviously you could smell skunks or whatever. So there was an element of smell that I realized when I would walk through the forest, I could smell the basswood trees. I could smell the co uh, cottonwood by the smell of the leaves and the soil and what, and how rich they were and how different they were. So the smell of like sycamore leaves there, all of those three things were very different. Willow, very different. And I began to experience the forest from that point of view and i could smell like the apples because at the time i was going out there there was a lot of apples on trees that were falling and that that was a one place that i got to hang out and wander through and see a lot of animals in there everything from deer to foxes to there wasn't really bears in those woods at that time there may be bears now i don't know but but definitely raccoons, skunks, every, everything was in there, opossums and stuff like that. And it was interesting to 
hear them crunching 15 feet away, uh, you know, and have three raccoons scampering back and forth and eating and oddly enough, fighting over an apple when there's 50,000 apples all around them. But some reason they're going to get on each other's case. Pretty interesting experiences. So those animals were really my best highlights, I could say, but it, it just was really fun because I really worked hard to keep my scent down. I would usually take a shower before I went without using like any kind of strong soap. I had some kind of natural soap that I would use and I would have the same clothes that I would wear that were outside kept just smelling more like nature than being washed and having all temperature cheer or some other soap in there. And I was really surprised because of three things. Like one was the fact that skunks are not afraid of us unless we are threatening it, unless we are like making like sudden moves and startling them. I, I'd heard that they were something that creatures that could be tamed or that were easily tamed or adjusted to be around humans, but I'd never experienced that myself. And I noticed that around my compost bin and around any other areas, if I found a place with it where there was like a regular area of food, there'd almost always be skunks waddling along. And that white striped skunks have that those white bands on the back from the head going back along towards the tail. And you can see that in the dark. Humans can see that. So many of them do, don't have a lot of white. Some of them are all white. It's really It was really interesting to see the variations. And I got to know some of them almost on a first name basis. And there was like one that was black with a, like a white head and no stripes. And he never wanted to let me get close anywhere. He would, if he saw me, he would stop. He would stamp a little bit or whatever. And I would just be like, all right, I'm backing up. You do your thing. I'll do mine. But there was like three of them that were pretty much a typical striped skunk that just traveled around. They were probably brothers and sisters and they would come over and they wouldn't go right between my legs or whatever, but they would come within a few feet of me and just sniff right next to me and really had, did not care that I was there. And they did give off a feeling of, Hey, how are you doing? That was the feeling I got when I would be out there. And I didn't really talk to them out loud anyway, but I did try to communicate to them a more of a feeling, the feeling that I had inside myself. And I really tried to appreciate them and they were easy to appreciate because they just seemed to be fairly warm. Raccoons were on the other hand, were very curious. And so they, it was hard to see them sometimes. You can definitely hear a raccoon as they make their way through the leaves or even the grass, they have a hopping kind of uh, stride and they don't mind smashing through a bunch of leaves. And, but they would then freeze and stare and wait and watch and get closer and closer just to see what, you, what you're doing. But again, they didn't mind zipping off, especially when they realized that I'm a human being, they would go their way. Possums, I never got the feeling of any real warmth from possums other than leave me alone, I'm going to do my thing, you do yours. They they were non-committal. <laughs> I didn't see a lot of possums, but I we were working on the edge of their range. And so for where we were, it would get pretty cold in the wintertime, and possums don't have very thick fur. Their ears, they don't have any fur on them, so they are super thin and gray and white, pink. And they have a tail with no hair. And it, it's not uncommon to see possums in the, in the daytime or whatever and to see them with, or if they get hit by a car, it, was, it would be fairly common to see that they had, frost, had had frostbite on their ears or that they had been frostbite on their tail. And so part of their tail was missing or part of their ears were missing just because it got so cold. So this, we were right on the edge of their territory. And of course, their territory would always kind of want to expand as it would grow. The animals would migrate further and further north just to keep trying. And then 
they'd make it for a few years and then all of a sudden we'd have 30 below zero and then that would be the end of it. So oftentimes they just wouldn't make it, unfortunately, because it just gets super cold for them. And they don't really burrow the way you would think they would. Like squirrels will build a really nice nest. And even though they have fairly thin fur, they will burrow five or six of them in a nest the size of a basketball and line it with like really nice fibers and they'll be cozy high 30 40 feet high in a tree in a windstorm with wind chill temperatures like 50 below and they're just cozy up there doing their thing and i guess the other animals that i encountered a lot when i was out were uh deer and i had i knew that deer were out and about and around all the time around us but i was not really prepared for just how common they were because you don't see them during the day i just i never really realized man i'd walk over by a field and i would be pretty quiet as i moved very conscious of not trying to alert everybody to my presence constantly and i just would see oh there's 10 deer in that field and then i'd walk for another 200 yards and cross over to another field and I'd look out and when the moon was out you could see that there were like a bunch of deer out there doing their thing and if the wind wasn't blowing my scent towards them and I was quiet they would just be doing their thing out there grazing moving around eating alfalfa or whatever they could get but I was really surprised about that and they and if sometimes when I knew they they were moving towards me and my scent was blowing the other way I would just sit where the gap in the fence was where I knew they would come and I would just sit near there. I wasn't trying to touch the deer to make it into this, hey, let me see if I can touch a deer without them knowing. But I wanted to be close enough just to see how much, how quickly they could be aware. And usually three or four would pass and then get about 30 feet behind me. And as the others are coming, they, the ones that had first come hit my scent and would like stamp and then they would all freeze and I'd be right in the middle of them and they would freeze and they would just be looking around. And then the, it, sometimes the wind would change and my scent would blow towards everyone and they'd all stamp and then just, they didn't know where I was, but they knew I was right there. And so they would just start scattering into the field and it was just comical to watch them run away without really knowing what the danger was or if there was danger, but they just were like, we got, we're out of here. And I got pretty, I got scared a lot from them because oftentimes if you're walking like on a road or whatever, and then you hear the deer far away on the hill, snort and stamp and do their thing that, you know, that can be startling, but it's really scary when they do that 10 feet away from you. And sometimes I didn't even know they were there. Um, in August, late August, the corn is pretty tall. And so sometimes they would be in the cornfield five feet from me, and I would be moving very softly uh, through the on the edge of the field there, you know, moving through grass or just taking my time. And when you get a 10-point buck snorting right there next to you, it is – I. Luckily, I didn't carry things in my hands, but I would have dropped them and did, I just would be like, oh my gosh, it's right there. And luckily, no, I never got charged or anything, but the deer, when they snort, they're like blowing out all that air to awaken all their scent sensors in their nose. And they have a huge nose to get, collect information from and, and to, they can smell like a thousand times better than us. And so they blow that out and then breathe in the scent and then tr be able to find out what the story is. And that's why they do that snorting. It does alert everyone else that there's danger possibly. And then the stamping is, a, is the other thing that alerts the other deer. And if they're, if they confirm that they smell a human, their tails up and they will start bounding and that white tail just alerts all the rest of them to run. And so I, that would happen a few times. It, it wasn't all the time, but those are the times where I got scared just when I'm out wandering around. You just don't really know that they're there. And 
this is another thing that's interesting about being out at night is that when you see an animal in the daytime, say you're walking across a field and you go, oh, look, over there in the distance, there's a woodchuck or there's a, a deer or whatever, a fox. And you can see the fox, you can see where it is, and you can then work your way towards it and see whether it sees you. And like you, you can get feedback on what's happening when it's dark out, even in the, and especially in the moonlight, you don't really know where, whether they're, as you're walking out there, are they coming towards you? Are they going away from you? It's very tricky to see what they're doing. And it's also tricky because you don't know if there are other animals right near you that also are close or part of that experience. And so when I would go out, especially along the stream, it seemed like the, you could sometimes hear two animals just going at it. And sometimes it was house cats. Sometimes it was raccoons. A lot of times it was raccoons, almost always. But there were other animal fights and things like that, that would go on some kind of struggle. And I would always be torn. Should I go closer to it and find out what it is? Or do I want to go closer to it and find out, oh, hey, there's a rabid raccoon fighting with another raccoon. And now it sees me and is going to attack me in the dark with no flashlight, nothing, whatever. And so I, I think I checked the, that out. If the area was very open and I could see what was going on, I would assess the situation and decide if I wanted to move closer. But there was a number of times where something was going on and it was a pretty big ruckus and I just decided I'm getting the heck out of here. And I would just try to do a big loop to avoid whatever the story was there because when I'm at an extreme disadvantage because they can all see in the dark and I can't, I was like, I'm not going to play around here. I want to make sure I'm okay. Another interesting thing that happened when I was out there was that the other trails that I took were always, were actually more trails that went over a mountain. Like I wouldn't call it a mountain, a little hill. And one of them was like following a logging trail, an old abandoned kind of overgrown logging trail that kind of wound around the hill and back through some really thick pine trees and then ended up in an orchard and, and back where there was a number of like old farms that were really just hay fields. And so the people that lived in the houses there had bought the land were like from New York City and they just let another farmer cut the hay. So there was no, it wasn't like an active farm going on. Those people weren't even living there or staying there most of the time. I just would go back and wander uh, through those fields. And both of those trails ended up in different places, but that it took me way out away from the river. And, and when I would go away from the water, the type of animals that I saw, it was a different experience because I could hear them coming from a long ways away because there was a lot of leaves on the ground. And it was fun to hear. Sometimes I would be in those pine forests and there, there was just pine needles. These white pines have very soft needles. And when those needles fall and they begin to get soft and, and decompose, it's very quiet under there. and I was really amazed at how when I would walk very slowly through those, those, I could actually hear the footsteps of deer. Sometimes I'd hear a fox kind of trotting very lightly through the, through there. And I just, even though I couldn't see the animal, it made, because it was dark under those pine trees, man, let me tell you, there was no light under there. Even in the moonlight, it can just, it just feels like it's this silvery black. But when I could hear that animal moving, I could feel it in the ground and I could hear it. It was just thrilling to be whatever, 20 feet away from a fox that was trotting by and didn't smell me and to have heard it before it heard me. And that was a real, a really fun treat to experience that and to experience all the different areas where as I moved through the forest, they had different qualities about them. And probably one of the other things that got, I got scared like three times. And one of them was going through, a there's a little marsh and I would skirt the edges of this marsh. It had a lot of like high bush blueberries in there that in the daytime we would go and pick. And there were some open water, and big tufts of grass, and there were turtles in there and stuff. It was a fun little marsh that was really surrounded by a bunch of fields and so small that I don't think anybody even 
ever really knew except whoever owned the farm back in the day. But I was making my way through that, around the area of that, and I guess a bunch of black ducks or wood ducks were sleeping on that water, which was only about the size of 20, 30 feet by 30 feet of maybe four foot of water. And let me tell you, like those ducks waking up and then exploding out of there, I literally fell down. I was just like, I did not know what it was. I just, I I thought my life was ending. So that was pretty scary. Um, So if you're, any of you are thinking about becoming nocturnal, just be prepared and uh, hopefully you will fall in a comfortable place that is not really muddy, which was not the case for me. I fell into a bunch of black mud, which was fun to realize when I got home and to see all this black mud caked on my pants and everything. Another experience that I had getting scared was cruising by some like old buildings in one of those abandoned farms at another area. And I remember just walking there. I, I, all the lights are out in the farmhouse. There's no lights on. There's no exterior lights. There's no cars in the driveway. So nothing's going on. And I'm not going through their yard, but I just was walking by this barn on the backside of it, trying to get to another field so I could do a big loop. And apparently there was a, a little window above my head, about maybe 12 feet. And I suddenly heard this scream that was a barn owl. And if you want to know what a barn owl sounds like, just Google it and listen to the audio. It is terrifying when it's 12 feet away from you, full volume. It's just hideous. And it scared the living daylight. That was the moment where I thought my hair would stand on end, like in Linus at the great, when the great pumpkin comes or whatever. Like it was just, I was, I didn't know what, what was happening, but all of my nervous system was like on full alert, full blast. And when I realized it was an owl, then it became a little bit more fun or whatever. I don't know. And I have heard them again in other situations, oftentimes 50 feet away, a hundred feet away. And I'm just like, oh yeah, that's an owl. But man, when it would go off right there, oh, it was scary. And the other thing that I will say that I heard a lot, I heard turkeys in the trees. Turkeys like to roost up in trees. And sometimes you don't know they're up there. And then until you make, you break a twig or something. And then next thing, there's a whole bunch of flapping and they're, they don't know what to do. And they're just like, uh oh. And that can be scary. And there was a lot of other owls, but I usually could hear those owls from pretty far away and they would come closer to me or they would go away. And I could, I tried to call them in a little bit. Sometimes I got good at doing that, but it wasn't really my thing. Like my buddy Dan Gardoki would probably have some really wonderful bird calls that would have brought them really close. And I was just like, "Eh, I don't know if I need some razor sharp talons coming really close to me in the middle of the night when I can't see. And they fly silently because they have those little hairs on their feathers to make virtually no noise. But owls, they're out there. And man, when they are in like mating season or whatever, like they will just go at it back and forth. And it's, it, the, the woods are not that quiet. Okay. That was another element to, to me was that because it's nighttime, they're just like all out walking around. Like they're not trying to be silent. They're just doing their thing. And I guess I'll end with this one story, which was funny. I was cruising along some of those old abandoned fields and crossing over. It was a windy, breezy kind of night. It was really warm. The moon was going in and out between the clouds. And I just remember coming along a field, turning and going through this opening in this hedge. And right in front of me was this huge shape. And I did not know what it was. And it just stood there. And all of my training and th- I, I just thought it was like a, an entity of some sort. It was huge and black and it just stood there, but it moved a little bit, enough of a movement that I was like, this is a real thing. But it felt like it was like a real thing from some horrible, whatever, horror movie. And at night, your imagination just goes crazy. 
and I just did not know what that thing was. And I did, I couldn't run. I couldn't go forward. I didn't know what to do. I tried backing away and it started moving towards me and I didn't know. I thought this is it. This is it. Like all of the, my worst fears came true. And then it stepped out from behind these little, that little hedgerow. And when it came into the field, I, I saw it was a black cow. It was just a pitch black, like Holstein or whatever. And it had just been grazing there. I don't know where it was from. There's no farms that had active cows. I have no idea where, what it did, where it went. I don't know anything about it except that it was there. And I, but let me tell you, it's not good to go out there if you have an active imagination and you love horror movies. I don't really like those movies, but man, we've all seen enough of those types of stories to just suddenly think, oh, maybe everything's true. Even viscerally, all those things come back. They're built into our hardwired into us. Anyway, that was, those are some of my experiences. And I would say the worst part about going and doing this was the fact that it took me really almost a full month to actually switch over and sleep during the day, fully sleep and then wake up and then go do that. So that was a kind of a pain to switch over. And then the other times that where it sucked was when it just was raining because when it was raining, like steady rain all night, nothing's really moving around the it's everything is just you can't hear anything you're just I was just like wandering around it'd be like wandering around in your shower with water just pouring down on you so I got really wet a couple times I felt like I was going to get hypothermia and so I came back and changed my clothes and hung out around my yard Uh, but yeah you, you have to definitely be careful in that regard but I'm glad that I went and sometimes it would be really the best times too were when it was moonlight and fog I love being out when it was foggy and misty, just would feel really cool, especially in the summertime. And I ate a lot of apples. There was a lot of those apple trees that were right, which was fun. Anyway, that was my becoming nocturnal story. I hope you enjoyed it. If you've been nocturnal for any length of time, please send me a note. Let me know how your experience went. And thank you so much for listening. And I'll see you in the woods. Thanks for listening to today's episode and for all the things that you do to help build a world that is connected to nature. You can get access to the bonus episodes, my forest educator, nature journals and curriculum, as well as other useful content by subscribing to my Patreon page where you can support us at any level. You can find the link in the show notes for that and my website and social media as well. And I will see you outside.